Hey guys, welcome to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines each week. Well, except last week, we were off for Christmas. So, Merry Christmas. Anyway, I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. Okay, so I have two things to tell you about this episode before we begin. Number one, until 1960, January 1st was celebrated as the Feast of the Circumcision of the Lord. And that feast and the Lord's circumcision is a really theologically and historically interesting and important reality. We have learned a lot about Christ and about the saints, about prayer even, in the production of this episode. And the episode is not graphic or morally offensive at all. But this episode is about the circumcision of the Lord. So you should decide if you want your kids to listen. That's probably especially true of our third segment. Basically, If you're listening with your kids and circumcision isn't a topic that you want to discuss with them or isn't a topic that you want them talking about on the playground or whatever, consider yourself warned. Okay, here's the second thing. In the course of our research for this episode, there was a debate, a a big debate in our newsroom about whether we could get excommunicated for talking about what we're going to talk about in this episode. That sounds really weird, right? It, It does. But... The idea of getting excommunicated is not a possibility we take lightly at all. So we debated it. We're a lot less worried about that possibility now, obviously, but you're just going to have to listen to find out what I mean. Stay tuned. You've reached the CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. CNA Newsroom. Welcome to CNA Newsroom. This episode is our last episode of CNA Newsroom for 2019. Originally, we thought about doing an episode all about New Year's resolutions, and we even asked our listeners to call in to tell us about their New Year's resolutions. And it wasn't that we didn't get good submissions. We did. But we decided to take this episode in a slightly different direction for reasons that I hope will soon be made clear. You may or may not know that the church used to celebrate the Feast of the Circumcision of Our Lord on January 1st. This is a feast that seems to have originated way back in the 13th century, and it continued to be celebrated just like that until 1960, when it became the Feast of Mary, Mother of God. None of us were alive in 1960, but still, we wanted to find out about this feast and and what it meant. Much has been written, of course, and, and said about Jesus and Mary and the Eucharist and the connections between the Jewish scriptures and the New Covenant. In fact, to understand Jesus, you have to understand his Judaism. Jesus is Jewish. That's why anti-Semitism should be especially offensive to Christians, aside from, you know, just ordinary human decency. Anyway, to understand the Judaism of Jesus, you have to understand his circumcision. So we tried this week to learn something about it. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with world-renowned art historian Liz Lev about the most fascinating depictions of Jesus's circumcision in art. Then later, we'll talk about popular medieval devotion to purported relics from the circumcision of Jesus, and about St. Catherine of Siena. But first... My name is Gregory Vall. I teach sacred scripture at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. Dr. Vall knows a lot about the connections between the Old and New Testaments. He also knows a lot about the circumcision of Jesus and ancient Near Eastern circumcision in general. You know, there, there were several groups of people in the ancient world that practiced circumcision. Not all of them, though. As we know, you know, the Philistines didn't. That's why the Israelites refer to them as as the uh, uncircumcised dogs. (laughs) 
but, but the Arabs did, and I think the Egyptians did as well. Circumcision had several meanings to the ancient societies that practiced it. You know, originally it seems that it was more of a um, rite of, of puberty. You know, even this, there's even an echo of this in the Old Testament where Ishmael, who's sort of the proto-Arab, is circumcised when he's 13 years old, but his uh, little ha half-brother um, Isaac is, um, you know, sort of the proto-Jew who's circumcised on the eighth day of his life. So it, it, it really kind of took on a unique meaning. Circumcision took on a unique meaning in Judaism, uh, where it was kind of the uh, entrance of the child into the covenant, the covenant that God makes with them when they come out of Egypt. You know, for the rest of Jewish history, to be circumcised is to enter, you know, into the into the Mosaic covenant, what we call the Old Covenant, and to be placed under the authority of the law of Moses. For Israel, circumcision was this extremely important way of bringing a newborn child into God's covenant. So in light of that, what should we think about the fact that our Lord was circumcised? He's the son of God, but he's only eight days old in his humanity, uh, I mean, since his human birth, and he doesn't really have any say in the matter. It's his parents who have him circumcised. And they're choosing on his behalf to make him a son of the covenant. That, that's very significant, I think. It shows how deeply rooted our Lord's life and his humanity is in Israel and in Judaism, in the people of Israel, and how significant his, his family was to him, um, Mary and Joseph. Beyond that, Dr. Vall said one of the most striking things about Jesus' circumcision is the fact that this was the very first time that Christ spilled his precious blood. And of course, it wouldn't be the last. It's quite striking to think of the incarnate Son of God eight days after his birth is for the first time shedding his blood. The same, you know, show, showing his true humanity, but also anticipating, in a way, prefiguring the blood he would shed in his passion. So the, so the piece of the circumcision was you know, for lots of reasons, very meaningful to Christians. Circumcision serves as a sign, a prefigurement of what is to come as Christ fulfills the Old Covenant and institutes the New. Thomas Aquinas says very clearly that um, circumcision is a sacrament of the Old Law. You could put quotes around sacrament because, of course, he doesn't mean that it imparts grace the way our sacraments do, but it it's a sign of the old law, a significant, you know, uh, sign. And and Thomas, Saint Thomas, also says that it it prefigures baptism, and so there's a clear correlation there. Baptism initiates Christians into the new covenant. So that that's all you know, quite clear and quite important. But we can't stop there because there is a sort of parallel between circumcision and baptism, but if we leave it as just a parallel, we don't see the real connection, and the connection is Christ himself. In fact, that's true of the whole relationship between Old Covenant and New Covenant. The, the connecting point between the two is the person and event of our Lord Jesus Christ.
The circumcision of Jesus, along with other very Jewish events in Jesus's life, like the presentation in the temple, have been a subject in Catholic art, both in churches and elsewhere, for centuries. What you might not know is that Judaism's influence on Christian art goes much deeper, all the way back to the first Christians and to the catacombs. With a colorful next segment, here's CNA producer Jonah McKeon. It's fun being an art historian. These are moments when it's fun because all these images come flooding into your head. It kind of looks like the way the opening of the Marvel movies have all these different scenes coming in, except you get it with like really good paintings. This is Liz Lev. She's an American art historian living in Rome. There are a great many images of, um, of Jesus's circumcision. It's something that's actually very commonly portrayed, but it has a huge reboot in the Counter-Reformation. When I asked Liz about the depictions of the circumcision in Counter-Reformation art, the piece that came first to her mind is at what is perhaps the greatest example of a Counter-Reformation church, the Church of the Jesu in Rome the first church to be completed in Rome after the Reformation took place in 1517, and the home church of the Jesuit order. In particular, she was thinking of the grand altarpiece, created by the Italian artist Monziano. Maybe about a quarter of the painting is this fascinating sort of blue sky with a very, very sort of fiery light coming in the distance. So something new is happening, something is awakening, and not just kind of the rosy fingers of dawn carefully awakening the next day, but kind of an energetic light in the background. And then the central band has a series of people painted in really quite brilliant colors. You have a lot of reds and pinks and blues. In the center, slightly off to the side, there is the, um, the, the high priest who is about to circumcise young baby Jesus, who is presented nude, lying on top of the altar. So you see the child who's lying in such a way that his feet come towards you, his body extends backwards. The, the high priest reaches around him, and the child is surprisingly, is, is really quite strikingly nude, and the image is quite frontal. So you have a, you have kind of a vivid image of, of a knife that is approaching the Christ child. Jesus, who is very calm, looks towards his mother, who looks towards him. So you have a kind of prefiguration of, uh, of, of the passion as well. Of course, any piece of artwork in a church is meant to invite those present to contemplate some truth. The choice of the image as an altarpiece, which happens a great deal in the in the, in the late 16th century, is of course to talk about the first bloodshed on the part of Christ. Thinking about Jesus's sacrifice and the repercussions of Jesus's self-sacrifice. So we start out with uh, Jesus who has come into the world for the purpose of redeeming mankind, which must take place through his death and resurrection. So the very first thing you're supposed to understand is this, this first bloodshed that that makes him part of this old covenant. Um, from there, it begins to move into a number of different directions. These paintings are so wonderful because they're so incredibly multifaceted. So the the next thing I think the viewer is invited to uh, think about is the um, the Eucharistic element. So you have uh, uh, the the child lying on the altar, and directly underneath it, you have the tabernacle with the Eucharist. Then you are invited to think of the relationship between Jesus and his mother. 
in Jesus and, 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 and Mary. The first bloodshed of Christ is extremely significant for an altarpiece, but she also mentioned the fact that Jesus' circumcision would have been the time when he actually received the name of Jesus. The idea of what uh, the name of Jesus means to us, so who is Jesus to us? As Jesus becomes Jesus, as he takes his name, uh, that, that, that tremendous power of the name of Jesus before, before which every knee bends, but it comes in the way we see it is in this very small and very vulnerable child. Images of Jesus' circumcision, as well as others depicting the presentation in the temple or other such important events, are certainly striking. But Liz said what's most interesting to her is how important depictions of stories from the Old Testament were to the very first Christians. The very earliest Christian art. So the Christians are just starting to make images. We are talking about the 3rd century AD in the catacombs and the 4th century AD in Christian sarcophagi. So this is our first foray. The Christians are thinking about the images and the stories they want to tell to present Jesus to the Romans. The amazing thing is that the overwhelming majority of images are drawn from the Old Testament. When they want to show you Jesus' death and resurrection, who do they show you? Jonah. When they want to talk about resurrection, they'll choose Daniel. When they want to talk about covenants that will save all mankind, they choose Noah. When they want to talk about God sent his only son, you see Abraham and Isaac. It is image after image after image drawn from the Jewish tradition. There is only one conclusion you can make, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of this tradition, a tradition that goes all the way back in time, drawing forth this this antiquity of, of Christianity, but also um, it is a way of just bringing out who Jesus is through his Old Testament ancestry. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. After the break, we'll talk to a man who made it his mission to find what could be the church's strangest relic. Stay with us. This is Bishop James Wall from the Diocese of Gallup. You listen to the CNA Newsroom or CNA Editor's Desk regularly, or both. I do. I listen to it on the iPhone app. You can listen here or on any podcast platform. Just search for CNA Newsroom and hit subscribe. Each new episode will be delivered straight to your phone. Now back to the show. Welcome back to CNA Newsroom. We're talking today about the theology and symbolism of the circumcision of Jesus Christ. For this upcoming segment, we're going to use, rather than the word foreskin, the more technical term, prepice. Just to be clear, that's a word that means foreskin, but we feel more comfortable using it. Hello, my name is David Farley. I'm a writer. Uh, I live in New York City. This is David Farley. He's an American freelance writer and author. I write for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. A number of years ago, David fulfilled a dream and moved to a little village in the countryside outside of Rome. I'm not particularly religious, but I have a master's degree in European history with, with a special interest in church history. So for me, these, these things, these things that kind of fall through the cracks of history are really fascinating to me. It didn't take David long to learn about the village's claim to fame. 
It claimed to be the resting place of a relic from the Lord's circumcision. In fact, every year the relic would be brought out and processed around the little village of Calcutta, Italy, and venerated on January 1st. There's a lot of things related to this relic that are like just legendary now. According to David, a pilgrimage to the Preppus was, at some points in history, even the subject of plenary indulgences. But, and this is a key part of the story, in medieval times there wasn't just one town out there claiming to have the true Preppus of Jesus. It wasn't even that there were two or three. There were at least a dozen towns that claimed to have it, most of them in France. The supposed preppus or foreskin in the town of Calcutta had an unusual fate. In 1983, the priest charged with guarding the relic inexplicably took it out of the church and put it in a shoebox in his bedroom. It was from there that the relic, he says at least, was stolen. Many villagers even to this day suspect that the Vatican had taken the relic, but of course, nothing's been proven at all. So here's the part of the story that we alluded to at the very beginning of the show. There's a legend out there, and honestly, it's no surprise made its way all over the internet, that there was so much fighting and disagreement about where the true preppus relic of Jesus Christ was, that Leo XIII had enough, and that he issued a decree threatening anybody who debated or even spoke about the preppus with excommunication. It was 1900 was when the, the decree was basically made. Um, you know, it's, it was kind of common knowledge in the village anyway, and the priests... The priest there, who's, who's, uh, on whose watch the forest can be stolen, um, would cite that decree all the time when asked about it. He'd say, I can't talk about it. I'll be excommunicated. There was a woman in the village who claimed to have a copy of it. And about two weeks before I moved there, she died. And, and I couldn't get her family to like look for it or bother with it. So, um, so that was, that was it basically. So, um, I have like secondhand knowledge of this decree and if it really existed or not. So the legend seems dubious at best. And plus, no one can be bound to a law that can't even be proven to exist. So as to our newsroom debate, I think we're fine. Though David himself is not a believer, the idea of such a holy relic that was so meaningful to so many people intrigued him enough that he wrote a whole book about it. Um, I mean, I grew up Catholic, so I, I do have some sort of Catholic culture inside of me. But um, but it made me, you know, the way I looked at this was that um, I'm pretty sure it was a relic forgery. But it was an important one because it's the only, if, you know, Christ ascended into heaven, and it's the only piece of flesh he could have conceivably left on earth. So it's kind of a big deal. And what interested me in all my research was that even though I was doubtful that it actually was the flesh of Christ— for centuries, people believed it was, and they treated it like that. And to me, that was fascinating. The preface was, in David's words, a rock star of a relic in medieval times. The medievals were very, um, I could almost say, preoccupied with the image of Christ's blood and his foreskin. Father Thomas McDermott is a Dominican priest who wrote his doctoral dissertation and a couple of books on St. Catherine of Siena. Catherine was the recipient of, of many uh, mystical experiences, um, very much out of the ordinary. Why are we talking about Catherine of Siena, you ask? Well, it's because there's another really prevalent legend that is found in books and articles, and again, of course, online, that 
St. Catherine received from God a very unusual ring. Barbara Tuckman, uh, a secular historian who wrote uh, a famous uh, book on the uh, on the uh, 14th century when Catherine lived, perpetuated that myth, if I could call it that, of Catherine receiving the foreskin of Christ as a wedding ring or her engagement ring, as the case may be. But there's no evidence of that in the primary sources. I didn't find any reference at all of uh, her being given by the Lord or anyone else uh, a ring uh, consisting of Christ's foreskin. However, um, Catherine uh, perpetuates that notion of consecrated persons, in particular nuns, uh, receiving, in effect, the foreskin of Christ uh, as a wedding ring. And, um, and she refers to this in um, one or two of her letters, at least one of them, to a, a cloistered nun. Catherine says, you see very well that you are a bride and that he espoused you, you and everyone else, and not with a ring of silver, but with a ring of his own flesh. Look at that tender little child who on the eighth day when he was circumcised gave up just so much flesh as to make a tiny circlet of a ring. Father Tom said it seems likely that Catherine actually did receive a ring from God as a mystical gift, a grace. But at least according to her spiritual director, Raymond of Capua, it wasn't a ring of flesh. The ring that she received, according to Raymond of Capua, who wrote the most um, authoritative biography of her, Catherine, uh, when she had the mystical espousals, uh, received a gold ring set with four pearls and surrounded by uh, a splendid diamond. Father Tom echoed Dr. Vall and Liz Lev in calling to mind the fact that Jesus shed his precious blood for the first time at his circumcision. It wasn't necessary for Christ to even come to this earth or, or to shed um, uh, any blood. Uh, one drop of blood would have uh, reconciled humanity with God, or a divine nod would have reconciled humanity with God. But the medievals uh, saw that the, the shedding of Christ's blood, beginning with the circumcision and, and reaching its apex with the crucifixion, uh, shows that God uh, was willing to uh, go all the way for us. And uh, so the first shock was that he shed his blood through circumcision as a child for us. So it was um, an extreme remedy that God went the whole gamut for us, um, when it, strictly speaking, was not necessary. He could have just nodded and forgiven us and reconciled us to the Father. Well, that's our show, everybody. We've learned how the circumcision of Jesus points us to the Lord's Jewish identity, to a greater understanding of his divinity and humanity, and to learning a little something about the fascinating world of medieval relics. And since we're pretty sure that that alleged decree doesn't exist, we're definitely not excommunicated. Well, for this, at least. Thanks for listening. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown, who is newly married. Congratulations, Jonah. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to everyone who talked to us for this episode. Happy New Year, everybody. We'll see you in 2020.